For those of you who don't know me, I'm Trenton Walker. I'm one of the pastors of Church 21, and my main area of ministry is on the south shore of Montreal, and it's a pleasure to be with you here today. And as we get into this, this text, this will be the second week that we're looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to have the all-church gathering uh, next week, and we're going to get to celebrate that together. Uh, but I, I just want to make a very strong statement right now. We are in the end times. How do you feel about that? You know, I don't want to say anything, like you can maybe infer something from this, but on the South Shore, people are like really excited. And I don't know if that says something about our congregation, but I want to acknowledge that, first of all, we have to have someone say we're in the end times if we're preaching Revelation. Just, just you have to say it. So I, I was willing to take on that. But also, there can be like a weird interest in being like, oh man, now I'm excited. He said we're in the end times and he has got my attention. And then there's this, like, also the opposite. You're like, okay, I'm in the wrong place today. Uh, it's dark enough that I can just slip out. <clears throat> so I, I hope we can find a balance there. I'm not going to preach as strongly as I just made that statement, but I do want to explore it a little bit. I'm going to give that disclaimer. And to hopefully welcome you into this spirit of exploration, I have a couple questions for you. So the first question where in the Bible can you find the verse, the lion will lay with the lamb? Yes, okay, you're very, very sure of your answer. And hopefully, not everyone was like, come on, Trenton, we all know it's not in the Bible, because I truly believe that there's been a misunderstanding often. There's no verse in the Bible that says the lion will lay with the lamb. Would you like me to grab the mic, the hand mic? Okay, there's no verse in the Bible that the lion will lay with the lamb. In Isaiah 11:6, it talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, uh, and it says the calf and the lion will lay together. Uh, not directly like that, but uh, if you read that verse, you'll see that. So it's like a misquotation that's been so widely adopted that people actually think it's in the Bible. Uh, the lion will lay in the lamb. Have you seen a picture of that, at least? Yes. So then you're like, it's got to be in the Bible. There's like a picture of it. And then another question. Lucifer is a biblical name for Satan. No more answers for me. <laughs> I just, uh, <clears throat> okay, the, the word Lucifer is only found in the new, uh, no, the King James Version as like a title for the morning star, but it's not a biblically accepted name for Satan because Satan doesn't even have a name. He's not given a name in the Bible. He only has titles. He's the adversary, the deceiver. He doesn't even have his own <clears throat> title, uh, other, uh, uh, no, his own name. So we shouldn't even call Satan, Satan. We would be calling him the Satan, as in the adversary. Uh, and so <clears throat> I asked these couple of questions because uh, I wanted to bring to light that maybe you already knew the answers. Maybe the answers are new to you right now, or maybe along you know, your time of exploring what the Bible teaches, you came to the realization, oh, like Lucifer is not found in my Bible. Uh, or, you know, the lion doesn't actually lay with the lamb according to the Bible. So that gives us uh, the idea that sometimes people that uh, teach things are mistaken, and sometimes we're mistaken in our understanding. We carry around these misunderstandings, uh, and I think we hold often too tightly onto like our positions on things. And I, I want to invite us to go into a, a kind of a spirit of exploration as we go into Revelation, uh, and we'll we'll see why that's important as we're coming. Uh, so if I say that we're living in the end times 
you might think that like I've got this wall at home with all these cords connecting to dates and times and locations and that I've figured out the date that Jesus is returning. And that's not what I'm saying. I, I, maybe Jesus is going to be returning soon. Maybe not. Um, someone, uh, one of my friends was like, yeah, okay, but like we're much closer to Jesus returning than all of human history. I'm like, okay, yes, logically, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't arrived. But what if our place in human history is like the beginning? What if there's like another 10,000 years before Jesus comes? It's like we're just at like the beginning of human history uh, in this um, redemption period of human history. So <clears throat> I just want to invite you into the idea that if we're in the end times and if the end times started at the death and resurrection of Jesus, the book of Revelation is extremely relevant to you and it has been extremely relevant to all believers of all ages and um, it's relevant for the universal church. And so this might go against what you've previously studied or what you believed walking in today. And so I want to thank you for engaging on this with me on this topic. And I just want to take a moment to pray um, before we get started. So Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is alive. And I thank you that that's something we can agree on, that your word is relevant to your church. Uh, so I pray that you would lead us into an understanding of the relevance of Revelation for your church today, for, for Church 21 downtown in Montreal. What, are, what do these words mean for us today, God? I pray that you lead us into a clear understanding. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> so I know that we're in our second week of Revelation, and Dwight might have given a bit of a kind of a context of what the book is, but so I'm just going to briefly summarize in case you weren't with us last week. There's strong evidence that Revelation was written by the Apostle John uh, just because of his authority to speak to the churches in this period. Uh, he, his understanding of the Old Testament, he seems to really know the Gospel of John very well. Uh, so maybe he's just John who's a fanboy of the Apostle John, or he's actually the Apostle John. And uh, the evidence shows us that it's written in A.D. 95 based on the things he's addressing in the churches. Like some of the things couldn't have happened if he wrote before this time. Uh, and so Apostle John, uh, A.D., uh, did I say 75? I meant 95. Whatever I said, I meant 95. And so what is the book of Revelation? It's an apocalyptic book. Now, who's, who's like seeking out apocalyptic books looking to read them? Uh, if you raise your hand or if you say yes, I think you might be mistaken because there, there none exist in the terms of what the Bible defines an apocalyptic book. An apocalyptic book is an intense prophecy dealing with the end times. So all apocalyptic literature in the biblical sense exists in our Bible right now. Uh, and so intense prophecy dealing with the end times, uh, that's not something we often fill our, our free time with. You're like, you know what? I could really use like some intense prophecy right now. I'm going to go look at, for that in Revelation. Now, a reason we don't seek that out is because we read it and we just like often don't understand what we're reading. But here's the interesting thing. I, I believe that Revelation is sim symbolic visions. Uh, and then we'll look into that. Even that, me saying symbolic could be something you disagree with. So thank you for engaging with this. Uh, the reason I say symbolic is because there is a heavy reference to the Old Testament in Revelation. Revelation has more direct references to the Old Testament than all of the New Testament combined. Okay? And in addition to that, the, the book of Revelation has allusions to the Old Testament. 
So it's not like, oh, this is a direct word-for-word -word quotation of this Old Testament verse. It's an illusion is like, that looks very similar. When you put those two things together, they look like the same thing said in different ways. So there's over 500 allusions to the Old Testament on top of the references to the Old Testament, uh, which makes something come to light. You really need to understand the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation. Uh, and so another thing that I've been keeping from you is the purpose. The purpose of apocalyptic literature is to make things known. All right? So who has read Revelation and been like, oh, I feel like this is making things known to me. It's so clear. Right. So your laughter shows what I already know for myself, and I'm inviting you to explore that we are um, ill-equipped for understanding these illusions and references to the Old Testament. The purpose of apocalyptic uh, literature is to make things known. We don't understand the Old Testament like the original readers of uh, this book or, or like the Apostle John. And so we need help to understand those connections and make those connections. And, uh, and I do believe that sometimes we make the wrong connections uh, and sometimes we make the right connections. And by God's grace, uh, what we're going to see is that what God is making known to all believers of all times is that he's working things out for his purposes. So even in misunderstanding of Revelation, even in the midst of chaos, the book of Revelation is saying that he's working things out to his, for his purposes. And that's what he's making known. Now, do you feel like that's true today? Do you feel like God is working out his purposes? And now let's think about your life. Let's think about uh, your place of work. Let's think about our city. I want to acknowledge it's not easy to, to say that. It's not easy to say God's working everything out for his purposes. But this is the beauty. This is the, the beauty of the book of Revelation. That in the midst of being like, it's hard to say God's working things out because I'm seeing tragedy. I'm seeing suffering in my, in my city, in my own life. I see apparent satanic dominion. I'm like constantly battling against all these things. When you read Revelation, this is the Bible's battle cry of victory. And so nowhere else in the, in the New Testament can we find anything that reveals to us this final victory of God in the way that we find it in Revelation, God's victory over the forces of evil. And so then the goal of Revelation is to encourage you. And so my desire is that as we explore this together today, as we continue to go through the book of Revelation, you're not going to be confused. You're not going to be uh, wanting to kind of argue the different points of, of how to understand the book, but you're going to be like, this encourages me. And so my first point getting into this is what to expect in the end times. And I'll have three things, three things to expect in the end times. And I just want to make a distinction here that the end times is this idea that we've been in the end times since uh, John was given this vision. Uh, things have been unfolding. Uh, there, we're not in the end of times because we're still here. Like according to Revelation, Jesus should come back and there should be like some crazy things happening. So we're not in the end of times, we're in the end times. And so what to expect in the end times? Uh, I'm going to just reread uh, Revelation 1, 9 through 10. You can join me. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in patient endurance, that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice, behind, uh, loud voice like a trumpet behind me. Okay, sorry, I missed that. <laughs> what to expect in the end times? Expect tribulation, kingdom, participation, and patient endurance. John is saying here that if you, like him, are in Jesus, you are brought into tribulation. You're going to experience tribulation. You're going to participate in advancing the kingdom of God, and all of that is going to happen as you patiently endure. He, the, he says, he uses the word partaker, uh, or partner, uh, sorry, that can be translated as fellow partaker. So that is what, what he's saying is, I know we all experience this. The church experiences tribulation. We have to patiently endure, and we see by God's grace, the kingdom of God advancing. So this, John is saying, I've experienced this. I'm a fellow partaker, meaning you've experienced this as he's speaking to his audience. And so that's something that we should engage with. Do we identify being a Christian as experiencing tribulation, enduring through it patiently, and then seeing the kingdom of God advance? Is that how you define Christianity? I think we don't want to. I don't think we want to identify our walk with God as experiencing tribulation, having to patiently endure through difficult times. But I do believe that this is a true picture of Christianity and that believers will be known by their resemblance to Jesus. Jesus overcame, Jesus conquered by refusing to compromise in the face of trials. And that's how believers can overcome by refusing to compromise in the face of trials, defeating sin in their lives. And so John is commissioned to write what he sees to the seven churches. Okay, and like this, this is the only time I'm going to get into a detail on a number. It's this time. The number seven, biblically speaking, references completion or perfection. I don't believe there were only seven churches that existed when this, when this book was written. Uh, so what I want to allude to here is that it's possible the reason the number seven was chosen is because these seven churches adequately rep represent all churches of all time. And so if that number seven represents all churches of all time, it means that this book has been extremely relevant for all churches of all time and for us today. And so then, as we look at the question, what to expect uh, in the end times, I want to ask, how are you today expecting tribulation in your life? And how are you anticipating that you're going to patiently endure and see the kingdom of God advance through that? My belief is that you didn't come in here saying, like, I'm anticipating, uh, uh, I'm expecting um, tribulation. I'm, I'm looking for that today. And I think the reason is because in the West, we're in an unprecedented church age. Uh, we don't experience tribulation like the church has historically or outside of the West is experiencing right now. And so what we have is this unique zero tolerance for tribulation in, in our church culture. Uh, and so an example of that would be like if you've gone to the dentist and he's like, what's your pain tolerance? And, he's, and you say, how much can you give me? How much of the freezing can you give me? Because uh, whatever is your max, that will be in line with my pain tolerance. And also even the prick of the needle can we like get rid of that? Is there some way you can freeze me before you freeze me? And that's, that's what our tolerance is in the West for tribulation in the church. 
And I'm like, listen, if I was here earlier and I said, we're in the end times, and you're like, I'm ready to leave, like this guy is wacko. Okay, if we were experiencing even a minimal amount of tribulation that the church historically has experienced or outside of the West is experiencing right now, you would be getting a cardboard sign and a Sharpie and writing like, repent, repent, the end of times is here. And you'd be on the street today. That, that would be what it looks like because you haven't experienced what the church has experienced historically or is experiencing outside of, of our church culture in, the, in Canada and the, um, North America. And so what you can be encouraged by in this is that how did Jesus ultimately conquer? He ultimately conquered through his death. Isn't that encouraging? Jesus didn't stay dead, though. He is brought into life, and as we see in this passage, life forevermore. But Jesus invites all of his followers to follow in his path, which is towards death. But the encouraging thing is it's not final death. It's not complete separation from our creator for eternity. So be encouraged by this. This might be hard. Be encouraged by this. Because if you experience tribulation, which is just loss, tragedy, difficulty in your day-to-day life, God hasn't lost control. That's something you can be encouraged by because you've been told to expect it. God hasn't lost control. You're not being punished. When we experience tribulation, because we're so, it's so foreign to us, we're like, okay, I must have done something wrong. I'm no longer accepted by God. And now I have to do some sort of work to re- regain my place before him. And somehow in like a couple minutes, you've got this work-based salvation. Uh, that's kind of what happens when we experience tribulation. So we need to know that what we see here, just from John's own testimony, is you can expect it. It is normal. And it will be your testimony to your new king. Your King Jesus, and that you are following in his servant leadership, his humble way that he walked on the earth as you see his kingdom advance. And here's the main point. You, if you are in Jesus, you have the same spirit, the Holy Spirit that empowered all of Jesus's ministry. You have that same spirit with you to endure patiently any sort of hardship that you'll face in your life. And so I do believe that is an encouragement for us today. Continuing on verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe with, golden, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, like, uh, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What to expect in the end times? Expect to be overwhelmed by Jesus. John turns He sees the seven churches represented by these seven golden lampstands. This is an Old Testament reference. The lampstand was placed in the holy place of the temple. The holy place was just before the holy of holies where God's very presence dwelt. And it was believed that the light coming from the lampstand represented God's presence in the temple. So we see here 
that if this is the universal church depicted by these seven gold lampstands, we see the universal church is representing God's presence through his Holy Spirit shining through his church. And in the very midst of that is Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, as we looked through Ephesians, we had a description of who Jesus is. Uh, and if we mesh that together with the description from uh, Daniel 7, 13, and 14 for what, who is the Son of Man, we get the result that Jesus is the King above all kings, the Lord above all lords, the ruler above all rulers. And then we see in Revelation, he's also our high priest, which means he's, he's tending to the church. He's caring for the church. He's, he's in the midst of the church. So Jesus will correct, exhort his church. And the reason he can do that is this image, his eyes like flame of fire. This represents Jesus' ability to see through the exterior of the church. He sees to the very heart and spiritual condition of his church. And so uh, on top of that, the fact that he's in the midst of his church, which is those seven lampstands, represents that at all times, Jesus knows the exact spiritual condition of his church. Next, his feet are like bronze, uh, burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This is a representation of the moral purity of Jesus. And it's a reminder that Jesus is building his church on that same moral purity. Then his hair, his voice, and um, his face shining like the, uh, the sun are Old Testament references to God, which is showing us that Jesus is God. And we're being reminded, Jesus is God. And then we see that the stars in his hand representing his heavenly authority. His, he has authority in his church on earth, and he has authority in the heavenly realms. And then this last thing I'm going to take a moment to look at, which is the sword coming out of his mouth, the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That represents his role as judge. And I want to say something today. Jesus will judge both the disobedient church and the world. So as he stands in the midst of his church, as he sees with his eyes like flame of fire the true spiritual condition of his church, he will judge his church and he will judge the world. So expect to be overwhelmed by Jesus. He is so much uh, more present. I don't know if you can say it. He's more present and more powerful and more active than you can imagine. We, we get these images of Jesus. I don't know if you've seen the show The Chosen. And historically, there's been times where Jesus has been presented like this, as someone you could really relate to and that you could actually love, someone who has compassion. Uh, and that, that's happened throughout church history. And I think it's important. We need to have that kind of image of Jesus, but we also need a bigger image of Jesus. We need him to be God. We need him to be building his church on his own moral purity. And we need him to be judging the church. And you might not like that. Okay, and if, if you've been part of the church long enough, you're going to know uh, what justification means. That means that Jesus' rightness, his goodness, is put on to those who believe in him because we can't be made right on our own, right? And then, then you understand, if Jesus has justified me, then I'm no longer judged. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, okay? We get that. So you might be like, okay, Trenton, no, Jesus doesn't judge the church. 
Uh, and you might be asking, if he saved us, why would you be saying that he comes and judges the church with his sword of his mouth? And so I want to remind you today that Jesus has the right to shut down churches. If you look right now, churches are shutting down. Churches have always shut down through history. And I won't get into details of specifics why and how, but I do believe that God is sovereign. That doesn't happen by accident. Jesus has the right to shut down churches that are straying or being disobedient, and they're no longer established on his own moral purity. And so he's done that, he can do that, and he will continue to do that. And so when we read that Jesus can judge the church with the sword of his mouth, it's not something for you to feel condemnation about. It's actually a call to repentance. If Jesus sees your true spiritual condition, and he can judge that, you are called to repentance. He does not want you to stay in that condition. He is building his church on his moral purity. He doesn't want to leave you stuck in sin. He doesn't want a whole church community to be stuck in sin. And so when he sees what's going on, because he's in the midst of his church, he's going to address what he sees. And this should be a comfort. I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment where you're convicted of a sin or um, even have, have like a word of knowledge about a brother and sister in Christ to kind of encourage them towards repentance. And it's like, it didn't come from you. You're like, I didn't even realize that I did that. And, and now I'm having this conviction. Thank you, God. I repent. I confess. And, and, and thank you for restoring me uh, to you in that way. I believe that's that judging that Jesus does. It's like things you weren't even thinking about will come to mind. You're like, well, thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. And thank you for reminding me that in you, I have freedom from that. And I don't have to live stuck in that sin. And so this is something that should come as a comfort that Jesus is present with you. He's present with us right here today. And that as we're being sanctified, that means uh, to be made to look more like him, Jesus is addressing things in his church. And by his grace, we're going to mature in Christ. We're going to be an image of Christ here in Montreal. And then this last part of the the text says, when I saw him, uh, this is starting at verse 17, I fell on Uh, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven church, the seven Lampstands are the seven churches. So my, my last point in this section of what to expect in the end times is to expect God to work it out. And I believe we see that in this section of the text. John's response to what he sees is extremely appropriate. He falls on his face in fear. And this is reminiscent of all Old Testament prophets, just like, okay, I'm unworthy, I'm falling on my face in fear. And then Jesus presents himself as the first and the last. In the same way, that God has presented himself in the Old Testament as having his uh, sovereignty over everything that's taking place. And so this phrase that Jesus uses is the power behind why he can say, fear not. It's referring to God's complete supreme authority over all human history from beginning to end. And so Jesus is using this sentence to show that he is the living one who died and is alive forevermore, and he 
has supreme, complete authority over what's going on. And it's, that's the power behind what he, can, what he says to John, which is fear not. And when Jesus says, I, I'm the living one who died and is forevermore, at this point, we're not, we're not in apocalyptic symbolic imagery right now. This is just clear. This happened. According to scripture, this happened. And it's confusing enough for us as humans to understand that what we do has a consequence. That we choose to do wrong, the things that we do are leading us towards death, and that the creator of the universe had to make a plan before he made all things that he would come into the creation he made to save his creation by dying for it. That, that's hard enough to understand. We don't need symbolic imagery placed on top of that. But maybe you're here today, and you, do, you are wrestling with that. You're like, whoa, there's, this guy's saying a lot of things. And I really didn't like the thing that he said that all, all of my actions are leading me towards death. Uh, without Christ, we are, we are stuck in sin. We are stuck in serving ourselves. We are stuck in pursuing emptiness, things that we think will bring us satisfaction but are ultimately leading towards death. And we, we do not have a relationship with our creator and we cannot earn one. And the, the Bible says that before the foundation of the earth, God had a plan with Jesus that Jesus would come into creation, be born as a human, and live a life that we can't live, a perfect life, die, and then come back to life so that we can have a relationship with our creator. And if that's the first time you ever heard something like that, know that it was, it was done for you and know that it's going to be likely that you're going to wrestle with the idea that you do wrong things. Uh, and that's, your first, that's the first thing to engage with, the first thing to wrestle with. And once you're able to admit, yeah, I think I've done things that aren't so great, then you're like, okay, how can I be made right in, in, in light of this? And then there's the beauty of, of what Jesus has done. He's already done everything you can't do to be made right. And so... Jesus, God the Son, came into the earth he created, died in order to restore life to his creation, and he's saying he is now forevermore. And all those who are brought into life in Jesus are brought into that forevermore life. And this, this is beautiful, and this is why John should not fear. And this is why all readers who ever read this book should not fear, because if they are like John, if they are in Christ, if you are in Christ, Jesus has authority over everything that's going on. And I know it's hard sometimes to believe that, but this is what the Bible's saying. And I think if you talk to people who've lived long enough to really live through tribulation, they're going to tell you, I saw Jesus in that. I saw Jesus in those moments of loss, of hurt. And, and John's commissioned here to write the things he's seen uh, to, and, and take note of them. And so this is where I get to kind of my point for why I can say we're in the end times. It starts with uh, just kind of the beginning statement in Revelation 1.1, but John's commissioned to write to the things that he has seen. This is referring directly to the vision he's like actually having. Um, th then it's those that are and those that are to take place after this. So the idea is that if Revelation is dealing with all of human history and it started with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it's not like, okay, yes, yes, for sure, these first couple verses are 
for the church when it was written, and then there's all this stuff that's like going to happen later. Well, if we look, if we take a step back from that position, and we say like this seems like this, all of this is relevant for all believers of all time, except for the end of times, like Jesus hasn't come back yet. It makes the book of Revelation so valuable to us, so valuable to all churches, all believers of all times. And so we're not going to push any specific view on Revelation. I'm inviting you to explore, taking a step back from holding on tightly to any individual view and looking at the bigger thing. God's in control. The, the, the book of Revelation is a battle cry of victory. And so if we were to explore that together through the book of Revelation, our series, I think it would be a success. I think it would be something that we can celebrate because we'll leave this expecting God to work things out. God says he's the Alpha and Omega. Jesus says he's the first and the last. As we believe in our God in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, basically we're saying our God has double authority over everything that's going on. Everything that's going on, everything I see that seems broken, the, the problems going on in my life, he has supreme authority over that. And I think that does and should change our perspective when we experience loss, trials, setbacks. That if you're in Jesus, who is the king above all kings, the Lord above all lords, the ruler above all rulers, and then we see also our high priest. If you're in Jesus, he lays his hand on you and he says, fear not, I'm in control. Wow. That, that should bring hope. I hope that's bringing hope to you today. But I want to acknowledge something, and that's the next point that we're going to look at. I feel like our capacity to find hope in, in these things is extremely limited because we do not fall in our, on our face in fear before Jesus. That's my next point. We do not fall on our face in fear before Jesus. It's really long, and I didn't even try to shorten it. We do not fall on our face in fear before Jesus. We take sin too lightly. We take sin lightly, which leads us to not living in the freedom that's been purchased for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said, Your religion is what you do in your solitude. End quote. What fills your mind when you're alone? What fills your time when you have some spare time? William Temple is saying that is your religion. That's what you are truly living for. And I want to acknowledge that given the chance, we'll pursue anything and everything that makes us happy. And most often, there are things that are really not good for us. And the reality here, looking at this text, is that Jesus looks at his church. He looks at you with his eyes like a flame of fire, and he sees your true heart. He sees that at times you are unrepentantly pursuing sin. You're filling your solitude and your mind with your selfish desires and selfish pursuits. I don't talk like this a lot, but I believe that this is what the text is leading us towards. And I want to acknowledge that it can sound really harsh. Maybe someone hasn't said this to you recently, that, that you are taking sin too lightly, that you're living in unrepentant sin. 
But I do believe that we need to take a moment to reflect and evaluate where we're at. Uh, and, it, and so it might sound harsh, and I want to present it from a little bit of a different angle. Now, imagine this. Imagine Jesus is inviting you to, to eat with him. And at his table, he's prepared a meal for you. There's fruit from every part, every continent of the world. And, and there's fruit that you've never seen before. And you'd have to like ask, how can I eat this? Can I eat the skin or do I have to like, what, how does this work? And there's, there's food on the table that's been carefully prepared. There's dishes that you've never seen before. Everything looks delicious. And somehow everything is always at the perfect eating temperature. Just no matter how long it's on the table, it is going to be served at the perfect eating temperature. And Jesus is laying this out before you saying, uh, and you're seeing it and you're like, this is more than anything I could even ask for. Like no one has served me a meal like this in my life. And uh, and I, there's most of these things I didn't even know existed. And it's beautiful, and you're being invited to come and sit down and, and eat this meal. But you are like Lyle Lyle Crocodile. Did anyone watch that movie? I think it's like just me that watches kids' movies because I have girls uh, that are seven and nine. But Lyle Lyle Crocodile, it's a musical. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a bad movie. Uh, but anyways, it's this singing crocodile in New York, this full-grown singing crocodile in New York. And the way that he has existed is he goes dumpster diving. He, befriend, he befriends this 10-year-old boy and brings him into his, his world of existence. And he's like, they go dumpster diving. They get all this food from the, behind these different restaurants in New York and then go up on top of a skyscraper and set it out as if they've got this feast. And like, spoiler alert, it happens, like, multiple times in the movie, and I cannot get over it. I could not get over that part of the, the movie. And it's, like, you're going to get sick. Like, don't, don't eat that, 10-year-old boy. Like, you're going to die. And, that, and that's us. We are going and finding what we can get for ourselves with our own strength, our own selfish desires, and we're setting a table for ourselves of garbage. And there's like caviar that's from a dumpster. And it's like, you're going to die if you eat that. And that's what our sin is like. We have been freed in Jesus from sin. You are free to not sin anymore. And it's when you come into, into new life in Jesus, it's actually the first time that you could really live in freedom. But then you say, I'm going to go eat dumpster food. Actually, worse than dumpster food, you're like, I'm going to go to the gas station and buy a gas station hot dog. And that's what I'm going to provide for myself. And, that, and, and that's what we do when we sin. That's what we do when we fill our solitude, our thoughts, and our, our own time uh, with our selfish desires. It becomes our religion. And it's like, Jesus is like, yo, I made a way for you to eat like perfect food. And, and be free from having to provide this garbage for yourself. And, and so it might sound harsh to be saying that we, we pursue selfish desires, pursue sin, but when we combine the image of Jesus as being very compassionate, but also someone who can judge us because he sees our true spiritual condition, what we find is Jesus coming to, to us, maybe even today, and saying, I see where you're at. I see the garbage, like stains on your shirt. 
I'm going to clean, <laughs> I'm going to clean you up and I want to, <laughs> you guys are distracted. I'm going to clean you up and I'm going to invite you to come and sit back at my table because that's the, what I purchased for you with my life and death. And so that leads us to my last point. Are you overwhelmed today by Jesus? Are you overwhelmed today by this picture of Jesus? The living one who died and is alive forevermore. That's, that's the trajectory of the gospel. And what the, the biggest picture of all of history, the biggest story of all of history is that the living one died and now is for, alive forevermore again. Jesus came into the earth he created and he died in order to restore life to his creation and is now forevermore. And he did that to bring you into that forevermore life, that fullness of life, to eat at the table that he's provided for you. And, and here's the thing. There's a couple, a couple different things going on at the same time. You're like, okay, I don't sin, but maybe I do sin and maybe I do need a savior. And I do appreciate if you're here engaging with that. Maybe you're here and saying, I have a savior and I don't, I don't need to feel bad about doing wrong things. I can do wrong things as much as I want and he'll just forgive me. And I do believe that uh, that's true, but Jesus wants to see you on a trajectory towards living in more and more freedom and seeing less and less. And then the last thing is you can be here today and be like, well, Jesus saved me because I was like a pretty good person to start off with. And so for anyone who's thinking like that, or even thinking just today, I'm a pretty good person, didn't do super bad things. You are so unlovable. And here's how I'll illustrate this. My grandma had a sphinx cat. And if anyone owns a sphinx, you can just sit here in a little bit of shame as I really, really go hard on the sphinx cats. But I would always be like so excited to go to my grandma's house and I'd be like, oh yeah, she has a cat and I'll get to pet the cat. And I'd get there and I'd like so cringe. Like it's not a normal creature. And, you, and I would have to be content to not pet the cat. I would just have to like play with it with a, like a, keep a sticks distance between us as we play. And so what I came to realize is it takes a very special owner to love a sphinx cat. And so Jesus is a very special person who sees you as like a sphinx garbage eating cat and says, I would die for you. Okay, so let's back up. This is too humorous, but let's back up from that, those images, but acknowledge that we're not really as lovable as we think we are. We are quite covered in sin and filth, and we don't deserve what Jesus did for us. And yet he said, I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. And he wants to be what captivates your thoughts and your pursuits. He wants to be everything for you. Every minute of your solitude and your free time can now switch from no longer providing garbage for yourself, but to actually be living in the freedom he's purchased for you and leading other people towards that same freedom. And so today we remember that Jesus judges the church with the sword of his mouth. And you might feel like a good churchgoer, but Jesus, he sees what you're truly consuming. He sees your true heart. And if you felt a call to repentance today, repent. We believe in the same way God has authority over all of history, 
God has authority over salvation. And he will finish the work he started. So in no way do I want any one of you to leave here today doubting your salvation. Doubting, am I, am I really accepted before God? I believe the work of Jesus, but, but I also sin. Don't doubt your salvation. Leave here knowing that Jesus is caring so much for you as this loving person and you being the sphinx garbage-eating cat that you can repent. You can truly confess, repent. You don't have to be stuck in sin. You don't have to be someone that, that experiences continued uh, slavery to sin. You've been purchased at a price to be brought into freedom in Jesus. And so James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you might be healed. And I think this is something that goes into this. As we take sin too lightly, we don't really repent, we don't really confess. But man, we have an opportunity to do that. We have an opportunity that as Jesus convicts our hearts, and there's some good shame that you can feel that will lead you towards repentance. And then when you repent and you can confess, you can really break the bondage of sin. You can really live in freedom. And here's the thing. If you feel ashamed, ashamed about something you've done, but you haven't repented, that's probably the Holy Spirit. But once you do repent and confess, if you feel continued shame, then it's just Satan. It's the adversary trying to keep you stuck in that. And you can just say, get behind me, Satan, because I know the freedom that was purchased for me. In Jesus, you can be freed and live in freedom. So let us not take sin too lightly together today, church. Let us live in the freedom that was purchased for us by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we conclude, I hope that you are feeling a relevance of revelation for you today. And that in the midst of tragedy, suffering, apparent satanic dominion, revelation is God's battle cry of victory. He's working things out for his purposes. And that if you, like John, are in Jesus, you should not fear. Jesus has complete supreme authority over all of history from beginning to end. And so here are just the three takeaway points. You can persevere through literally anything. Because in Jesus, you have the same Holy Spirit that makes you a lampstand, that shines as the presence of God to the people of, around you and to show your, your kingdom involvement, you have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had to empower him. So you can persevere for, through anything when you experience tribulation. As you realize that Jesus is so present, so powerful, so active, more than you can imagine, you're going to see that he truly does have the power to bring victory into your life over sin. And, it, and he is able to make you look more like him. And lastly, if God is truly the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the last, uh, and Jesus is the, the first and the last, when we experience loss, trials, setbacks, we can be reminded that Jesus, the King above all kings, the Lord above all lords, the ruler above all rulers, our high priest, sees what's going on in our life, lays his hand on us, says, fear not, 
I have things in under control. So my hope is that as we learn through the book of Revelation, what we will be learning is that we can be encouraged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's living and active. And I believe that today, as we leave here, uh, we can leave here rejoicing. God, I pray that no one would leave here under condemnation or shame, that we would repent and confess our sins and leave here in the freedom that you purchased for us. And for anyone who has never experienced this, God, I pray uh, that they would have the, the peace to come and speak to someone and ask, what does it mean for me to, to have salvation, to be saved from death in Jesus? So God, I pray that, um, that we would be encouraged. And I thank you that all of this is possible because of Jesus. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.